At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. And Wolf and Sarah, thank you very much. Certainly we are, and we continue our continued coverage of markets and turmoil. Welcome to CNBC's Fast Money, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Hope you had a wonderful long holiday weekend wherever you may be. And everybody is safe and happy. Thank you very much for joining us, folks. Well, we have got a big show for you tonight as the markets kind of do this a little bit. The Dow falling 1.3%, but the tech-heavy Nasdaq, that finished higher, in fact, in the middle of a little mini three-day win streak here, believe it or not. Maybe your stat of the day, 164 of the S&P 500 are actually higher now year over year for all the market damage over the past year. A good chunk of the market still remains higher. We've got, of course, a great investment committee lined up for you again today. And that would be Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan and Karen Feinerman, who will join us in just a bit. All right. Welcome, everybody. Let us begin the show by focusing on four big macro calls today from well-known firms, all kind of saying the same thing. Are you ready, folks? All right, let's walk you through it. Number one, Goldman Sachs, the market, unlikely to make new lows. Morgan Stanley, pullbacks should be bought. J.P. Morgan Chase, we're going to hit all-time highs in the market next year. And Piper Stanley being more direct, the bear market has concluded. There you go. All right. Let's join in. Guy Adami, you heard that. You got four calls all kind of saying the same thing. It's not taken away from Main Street and the human toll. We understand we are focused on the markets. Do you agree with those pretty optimistic views? No, but I hope they're right. But the short answer is I just don't see how we get there. You know, I thought the market when we made an all-time high of 3,400, 3,393, you know, if you were assuming $160 worth of earnings, the market was trading at 21 times. I mean, we're not going to get anywhere close to 160. I think Scott Miner uh, has said you could see 100. I mean, you, even if you say 130, is a 20% discount, and we're still trading at 21 times. So the market was expensive at all-time highs. I think it's expensive now. We've, we've had a great run off the bottom. It got to the levels where a lot of us thought we would get. You know, will we make another new low? I have no idea, but I don't see this thing just continuing to ratchet higher in this current environment. So, no. Yeah, Tim Seymour, I mean, I guess there's another way to look at it, which is I know we've had a little bit of a run here on the tech-heavy NASDAQ, but I suppose if you throw 6 to $10 trillion at a problem like the government has, you might expect a little more in some ways. By the way, that was Guy's dog flip in the background agreeing with Guy's view of the market. Um, I, I, you know, I think you have to ask what made this, this uh, quartet of strategists suddenly bullish after a 25 percent move. And, and so, um, yes, you have to look at Friday's action by the Federal Reserve as something I think we'll, we'll talk about for, for years to come, uh, the day uh, a lot of debt in this country was socialized, or at least the, the prospects of it could be. And I, you know, we talked about this on Friday. So uh, I, wondering what suddenly gets people bullish other than price action um, is, is the question I think we're asking today. 
Um, we have seen the plumbing improved by the Fed. So again, talking about how liquidity in both money markets, credit markets, uh, commercial paper, uh, things that actually need to move to have not only businesses function, but obviously to have investors be able to feel comfortable in markets. So yes, that's, that's very good. Um, hard to see where equities get away from you here on the upside, having said all that. Um, you know, there's, there's very little in earnings season that will compel C-suite who are not going to give you any second quarter guidance um, and probably not going to give you much in the way of 2020 guidance to say much of anything. So the, the question is, does this put you in the same place we were with the job market when people knew we were going to have, you know, 6.6 uh, jobless claims, uh, you know, one week and five and a half the week before and, and, and the market didn't even blink. So that may be good news for, for, for equities here. Um, ultimately, uh, the question is, what's the multiple you want to pay on the S&P uh, when, in fact, we're, we're certainly going to be uh, going through a very painful contraction period. But right now, um, the market hasn't necessarily been here. Trade The last time we were here trading the upside in a market was June of 2009. And it's hard to feel that the backdrop is as strong as it was there. So I, I think you have to be a little cautious when you get this response from the street. Yeah, instead of seeing more, I guess we're going to see less. Tim, Dan, Dan, Nathan, you've talked about this in the past, but let's go back to these calls. I mean, let's be honest. You can disagree with them, okay? But these are huge firms with tens or hundreds of thousands of clients. You know their guys are on the phone calling up their wealthy clients saying, we think the bottom is in. If that puts money to work, it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy, could it not? Well, yeah. Of course, it could be, Sully, but I mean, I think you have to go back to 2019 and you have to think about, you know, that rally that we had in the in the Q4 where we broke out in the S&P 500 at 3000. And over the next few months, we went straight to the highs at 3400 ish or so. And at the time, every strategist on the street was tripping over each other to raise their 2020 price target above the next bullish guy or gal. And the idea there was don't fight the Fed. Why? Because the Fed started cutting interest rates for the first time in 10 years um, in July, and then they started to uh, do their, you know, repo operations, i.e. Uh, QE, and therefore we had this liquidity-induced rally late in the year. So here's the thing, you know, every strategist was kind of hoping for the best and not preparing for anything other than the best. Here we are now, the stock market crashed, commodities crashed, the credit markets crashed, um, and we have a situation where we're off the lows, we're at the almost exact mid point of that range in the S&P 500 from 3,400 in the upside down to 2,200 on March 23rd. And what these strategists don't want to do is be caught off sides from the next big secular shift. They're not going to get in a whole heck of a lot of trouble if we go back and retest the lows and at some point this year find the bottom. But if we go back to the highs anytime soon, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. So I would not be chasing um, tails around here. That's exactly what's going on, in my opinion. So to me, this is just what these infrastructures are there to do. They're there to keep people invested, keep them optimistic. I think this is a time mm. where people should be preparing for the worst and, and to use Guy's expression, hope for the best. Well, Karen, Morgan Stanley lays it out very clearly. Pullbacks should be bought. Right. I don't see this as a pullback, actually. I see this as a, you know, giant leap up. I mean, we're down 20 percent from where we were. I think the market now, after the run we've had, is so much more expensive than it was at 3,400, uh, given the uncertainty that we have. So this, I, I mean, I, I guess if they're saying a pullback from here, 
But this to me is not a pullback given what's happened in the world. Um, so, you know, I'm always long and that's sort of my, uh, uh, you know, cross to bear, but uh, I'm not adding new things here because I think this market is really expensive. Yeah, very expensive. All right, let's bring in another voice of this conversation. That is Christina Hooper. She is chief global market strategist of Invesco, well known to our audience. Christina, uh, it's good to, quote, see you again. I look forward to being on set with you once again. You heard the conversation. You heard the calls from those banks. There tends to be still this buying or optimistic bias on the street. You believe that to a point, correct? If I'm reading your research correctly, it's listen, be smart, think for the long term. You want to buy when things are less expensive. Brian, that's absolutely right. But let me qualify that by saying that we can't think of valuations right now as an exact science because these are extraordinary times. And the dominant factor impacting risk assets is not valuations, it is the Fed. Um, what we learned from the global financial crisis is that when the Fed throws um, money at a problem, throws stimulus at a problem, typically risk assets do well, regardless of valuations. Is there any way to gauge valuations right now? I mean, I think Tim made a great point that, you know, with all due respect to our coverage, I don't know what earnings are going to tell us. The CEOs don't know. They're not going to say anything. Is there any way to gauge exactly how cheap or expensive the stock market is right now? I think it can be a fool's errand. Certainly we want to try, but it is just so difficult to do that. And I think what we need to do instead is look ahead um, to what we can uh, imagine once a recovery gets underway, and also look to the policy tools that are being utilized now. It's nothing to sneeze at. We've got a Fed that's far more activist than it was during the global financial crisis. We also have a Congress that has been, up until now, um, fairly functional and relatively generous compared to the global financial crisis. Uh, so this is an environment that should be supportive of risk assets. Now, that doesn't mean a straight uh, uh, rally up. It means a lot of volatility. Um, but I do believe that, that risk assets are benefiting from this environment. Christy, it's Karen. I'm Let me sorry. just ask you a question. I generally agree with everything you're saying about the Fed, but I feel like the Fed, the extraordinary measures that the Fed has done, has gotten us to this point, this up 20%. And when I think about the global financial crisis, TALF was in, uh, in the fall, and we actually didn't bottom for another four or five months after that. That is correct, but I think that the market knows what to anticipate now, right, because we've seen this before. So we're seeing a faster reaction time. That doesn't mean that this is over. Certainly, I expect more volatility. I expect down days and up days, but I do believe that as we see the, the Fed to continue um, to buy uh, assets and really expand what it's buying, that should be a positive for stocks. Just quickly leave us to this, Christina. What looks from a macro perspective, sector-wise or whatever, good to you and your team at Invesco? Well, technology looks attractive. Uh, it's an area, actually, where um, we're likely to see improvement in earnings and revenue once the economy begins to pick back up. Certainly, companies are likely to spend more of their CapEx dollars on technology going forward. Um, ditto for some uh, within the communi communication services area as well.
Christina Hooper Invesco. Christina, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. Chat with you soon, hopefully around an actual physical table in person. Take care. You know, Dan, Nathan, I think I'm going to go to you, too, because we've talked a little more. You know, you talk about the MAGA trade or whatever. I think the one thing, when this is all said and done, whatever that is, the one thing we're going to learn is that work and how we live will change in whatever way. I don't know how big, but it will. And I think to Christina's point, these big technology firms, whether it's through contact tracing, work from home networks, technology is very likely to be the big winner here. Would you agree or disagree? 100%. And I think the outperformance in the mega cap tech is telling you that, you know, I was just looking at Intel down 2% on the year, obviously a very, very cyclical part of the economy, semiconductors, and it was a big ladder to much of the space for the last 18 months. And it's really outperforming right here. When you think about some of the things that are going to come out of this crisis, Internet of Things is going to be a really important part of that. Some of the technology that goes into autonomy, um, that sort of thing. This is a company that spent the last few years buying companies. They spent $16 billion buying Altera. I think another $13 billion buying Mobileye um, in autonomy. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that, that these guys have been piecing together over the last few years that they should benefit from. Obviously, their server business is really important, too. But, you know, it's hard to think about Microsoft. It's hard to think about Apple, Amazon, um, and maybe even Alphabet, given all the stuff that they have away from advertising that won't yeah. benefit from some of the new trends that emerge in this post-coronavirus um, culture. Okay, I'm sure we got a lot more thoughts on that. But right now, speaking of technology and speaking of being at home, we've got some breaking news on Roku. For that, let's go to Julia Borston out west. Julia. Brian, that's right. Roku shares spiking in after-hours trading after the company announced that it was giving an update on the impact of coronavirus. See, Roku shares up nearly 10%, saying that beginning in the late and the latter half of the first quarter, Roku was starting to see the effects of large numbers of people staying at home. And for Roku, this has resulted in an acceleration in new account growth and an increase in viewing. The company withdrawing its full year 2020 outlook, saying it now sees first quarter revenues of between $307 million and $317 million. That's versus the $305 million it previously reported. It also reports 3 million new active accounts since the end of 2019. And it says it sees its first quarter streaming hours up 49% year over year. So, Brian, you were just talking about the tech trends that will be forever changed because of this. It looks like there has been higher adoption of Roku and his business. And uh, we'll see if that sticks around as well. Back over to you. Yeah, that's that stock up nine and a half percent. We'll see if those gains stick around. Julia Borston, breaking news there. Guy Adami, I mean, listen, there's things, Guy Adami, that are going to be permanent, right? These infrastructure and architecture changes we make. I wonder if some of the things like Roku is going to be temporary. Hopefully, we'll all be able to leave our home again one day, and, and I'll take you to a drive-in theater guy for a malted. Can't wait, and I'll have the, the uh, Twizzlers as well, my own bag, by the way. <laughs> but in terms of Roku, the stock, if you go back... In 2018, you go back and look at that stock, it topped out about $70, and then it fell off. If you go back and look over the last couple of weeks where it traded down to, it retested that level. I mean, these numbers are good. You know, kudos to Dan Nathan, who, when we were still doing the show back at the NASDAQ, he said, you got to avoid Roku. But here, I think you got to add to this position despite the move higher. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see this thing accelerate over the next couple of days. So I think this is good news. I think Roku, on the back of... You saw what happened with Netflix. I think the stock continues to trade higher from here, Brian. Tim, your thoughts? 
Well, in a world of haves and have-nots, you explained the backdrop for, for where these numbers come from. The, the question is sustainability. The question is the competitive landscape. And, and ultimately, the question is valuation of Roku. Um, I have trouble in this environment buying uh, these a lot of these high multiple stocks, either the ones that are seen defensive in the short run. You might get follow-throughs, guys talking about. Um, but ultimately, if anything, those are the stocks that are setting up for, for not only, I think, significant disappointment in terms of their comps, um, but but that which was defensive today, uh, that's not necessarily got a moat around it tomorrow. I think you have to be really careful about chasing those stocks uh, in the middle of this. And I actually think Netflix is one of those, but I've already said that. Uh, and that had a big day today. All right, good conversation there on Roku. Breaking news, that stock up more than 9%. Okay, you know what was not up today? And that was oil, despite an historic and record production cut agreed on by OPEC Plus, the G20 Earlier today, I had the opportunity to do a long interview with the Saudi energy minister. Hardly gives any interviews. We had one. You're going to hear from him as well. Plus, there are stocks that are up over the past year. Barron's laying out 12 of them. Which of those names, look at all the names, does our investment group think could be good buys from here to come? We'll dig into that and hear about oil coming up next. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. All right, welcome back. What was supposed to be a relatively easy and quick OPEC plus decision on production cuts was anything but. But after four days of tense negotiations, the group, along with the G20, ultimately willing and able to agree on some major production cuts. Here's what the headline numbers show, despite the fact it can be a little bit confusing. OPEC plus 23 countries agreed to a 9.7 million barrel a day cut for May and June. After June 1st, it goes to 8 million barrels a day, or I should say July 1st, then 6 million barrels a day for all of next year. But anything can be revised at OPEC's June meeting. Follow that? Well, that's clear compared to the G20. Now, the G20, and I'm going to call it the bank nations, Brazil, America, Norway, and Canada, really the key of G20, they don't have an OPEC. They don't have a national producer. They can't say you're cutting this and you're cutting that, but they can, through capital spending cuts, effectively show the market what they are able to do. So let's call the bank nations 3.7. What's the bottom line of all this oil math? You're looking at probably a minimum of 13.4 million barrels a day, which is about 13% of global production right now at 100 million barrels being taken off the market. That's the headline number. However, earlier today, I had the rare opportunity to do an interview with the energy minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, one of the sons of the king with 30 years of experience in the global oil and energy markets. We talked today and he said, despite the headlines, he believes because of higher production numbers, the OPEC plus cuts are more like 12 and a half million. Listen. 
the number is way much bigger. Uh, it's 12.12.12.5 million barrels. Uh, my calculations as follows: the 9.7 is true. Uh, we are doing 1.3 to bring us back to the 8.5. The UAE. This is uh, as a uh, as a result of our high production in April. The UAE is also coming by about a million, and I believe Kuwait has uh, made also another announcement that they're coming down by about half a million more than what they were uh, doing. All right, that was part of the interview there. It was a long interview, by the way, and it should be up already. And if it's not, it'll be up momentarily on CNBC.com. If you're interested in oil and energy, listen to the whole thing. In the interview, one of the things I asked him, and I asked him directly, I said, do you believe that, or, or many Americans believe, that what is happening is the Saudis going directly after and trying to destroy the United States shale market? In our interview today, he reiterated his position that that is not the case. If you do remember or don't, back in December... In Vienna, Austria, at the OPEC meeting, I asked him that same question directly about Saudis, OPEC, and U.S. shale. What is the fate of the U.S. shale sector? Well, we like them. And we would welcome them to come if they can. I know by law they were not. But uh, we were talking about a Good Friday in an Irish way. So it's also a good Friday for our friends in Oklahoma and Texas and all those who are producing. Uh, we, we've been doing a good work for ourselves, but if it, but if it, mean, but if it means that we are helping them, uh, it would be a, a, a good adventure. I have lots of good friends in those parts of these states, and I would be more than happy to enjoy with them a dinner talking about how much uh, we've been doing good work for them. It would be nice if we can hear a good word from them of um, some word of appreciation, not for me, myself, but for the good effort that we're doing on behalf of the industry. They would love your $3 cost of production. Thank you, sir. All right, that was our interview, or at least question and answer session in the OPEC basement. Tim Seymour back in December, he reiterated similar comments saying, we're not trying to destroy the U.S. shale industry. Mostly we're just trying to make everybody on a fair and level balance sheet. Well, you know, I, it, it's hard to really know what, what the intent here is. And there's, there's arguably some uh, uh, OPEC plus producers, including Russia, that have every interest in, in also putting as much pain on an industry that before going into this was under a lot of pain. But uh, I, here's what I'll say about the cut and what I think about the oil market and the impact on markets is I'll call my storage facility half full using the metaphor. Obviously, they're way full. Um, but I, I, I like what happened. And, and I think while it may not be enough, and I think demand fall off in, in 2Q will be more likely 15 barrels a day, um, I do think this really prevents uh, carnage in the second half of the year. So um, I, I, think that we've, I think we've seen the bottom in Brent, uh, at least with all the other status quo that we know right now. Um, I can't predict the future in terms of other ingredients here. But based upon supply demand and how oil, I think, overshot on the downside and the religion that literally has uh, consumed uh, many different religions involved in the geopolitics politics here um, of what they have to do. Um, it's not just about putting the U.S. out of business. There's a lot of other balance sheets around the world that are in trouble. Um, and, and I think energy bottomed. And Guy Dummy, I mean, I, I, li listen, Saudi cost of production is about three bucks, but their social costs are higher. UAE, Kuwait, the same. Nobody 
is winning at $25 oil, are they not? I mean, that's the point. People can say, well, that's cynicism on the part of the Saudis. No way. They're not winning at $25 oil. The U.S. is certainly not winning. Nobody is winning. I appreciate you asking those questions, and you have to take uh, the man at his word. But what I'll say is nobody might be winning, but I think there are people out there that are more than willing to lose the battle to win the war. And you can tell me whatever you want. I mean, one thing we're still entitled to is our opinions. And my opinion is the Russians and the Saudis absolutely did what they did a few weeks ago. It might be a month or so now. I lose track of time to absolutely cripple our industry. And it comes to me, you know, it's no real surprise if you overlay the chart of when Saudi Aramco went public and then the subsequent move in energy. I don't think it's so, so coincidental. So I, I admire that you asked the question. I'll take him at his word for his answer. But if you don't think watching at home that the Saudis and the Russians don't want our oil industry to be crippled, I think you're reading the wrong book. No, they, they, they certainly might want it crippled because we have been, Karen Feinerman, we have been the price maker over the last couple of years, kind of come out of nowhere from 5 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. A lot of that, as we have talked about extensively, is fueled by debt. And there are companies who trade today that I'm confident in saying, and I don't want to editorialize, Karen, their equity will likely not exist in a year or two. But there will be survivors. Are you ready and willing and able to bet on any of these companies surviving this and ultimately maybe making themselves and investors a buck or two down the road? Uh, not yet. I mean, I, I agree bankruptcies are, of course, coming. It doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that there'll be a complete contraction at all in, in what we produce. But I'm sort of wondering, Brian, you can probably answer this better, that that deal seems, you know, uh, tenuous at best. And with the, you know, with it sort of phasing out rather quickly, it wouldn't be shocking to sort of see it not really ever get going. And so I'm wondering... With oil here, is oil sort of saying we don't we don't even think this is this deal is so great, but we're it's just bottomed out, even without even with well, a, yeah, a, a demand destruction um, loose deal. Yeah, demand destruction. Karen, your points will take it's about thirty to thirty-five million, maybe twenty-five to thirty-five million barrels a day. So it's not enough. By the way, I asked him, could they get more aggressive at the June virtual meeting? And at the end of the interview, he said, yes, by the way, that interview, I think it's up on CBC.com. Again, if it's not, it will be very soon. All right, coming up, we're going to meet a CEO who has taken some steps to lay off none of his 12,000 workers. Is he a CEO other CEOs can learn from? You're going to meet him and hear what he's doing as well, plus some big news on Gilead, how close are we to maybe some kind of treatment for this? Make Terrell with that news. A lot more to do. You're watching Fast Money. We're back right after this. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. Well, maybe the best piece of news that we can get after an Easter Sunday and the continuation of Passover is some positive news about a possible treatment for the coronavirus. Gilead Sciences continues to move forward on that. Let's get the very latest with Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, it's the first real organized look at data on Gilead's remdesivir that we've received. And it wasn't from a clinical trial. It was from a collection of patients who received this drug on what's known as compassionate use. So these are very severely ill patients uh, who were not included in clinical trials. Gilead presented uh, data on 53 of those patients um, and showed that 68% of them showed some clinical improvement in terms of how much oxygen support they required. Uh, 30 of those patients were on ventilators and intubated and after treatment, 17 of them were able to uh, come off that, um, that support. Seven patients, though, included in this group died. Uh, and there are several caveats to this. Because it was compassionate use, there was no control, no group to compare this to. Um, in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine article, uh, the lead author on that saying, quote, currently there's no proven treatment for COVID-19 and we cannot draw definitive conclusions from these data, but the observations from this group of hospitalized patients who received remdesivir are hopeful. And hopeful is really that word that a lot of folks are using, that we need clinical trial data to really know how well this drug works. And we're going to see that pretty soon. Gilead says we should see data from its trial uh, later this month, as well as data from another one of its studies and an NIH study that was controlled um, in May. So that is coming up, Brian. Back over to you. All right, maybe some good news there. Meg Terrell, Meg, appreciate it. Been busting, you know, all day long, I know. So thanks for sticking around for Fast Money. Meg Terrell working literally like pre-dawn to darkness. All right. Coming up after the break, the banks, they're set to release their numbers. Fewer expected to care about the actual earnings, but what can they tell us maybe about the future? We're going to find out as well. Plus, Johnson & Johnson, could they give us also some much-needed hope about a possible treatment? We're going to find out and also hear what options traders may be doing around J&J. A lot more to do here on Fast Money, and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC's Fast Money. We are about ready to enter what we used to call earnings season. I will say used to because it's doubtful that a backward-looking indicator going back three months is going to matter a whole lot, given that the last month of that quarter pretty much saw the greatest single-handed slowdown in the history of the American economy. However, we have to pay more attention, perhaps I would imagine, Dan Nathan, to what companies like the banks are seeing right now and saying about the future. What are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that the other panelists um, are going to have a lot more constructive things to say about the banks, their earnings power, how they're positioned into this crisis. This is not a banking crisis like the financial crisis from 12 years ago. But I think it's worth mm -hmm. noting that last year, the last time there's about a volatility in the bank stocks was on the 210 uh, U.S. Treasury yield curve inverted last summer. And, you know, that obviously um, portends some, some difficult 
times for the economy. We know that that has preceded almost every recession prior. We're going to be in a recession now. I'll just make the one point, though. When you go back to the financial crisis, that yield curve inverted in 2006, and it started going up pretty steadily in 08, 09, just as bank stocks were crashing. Bank stocks now in this crisis right, are, right here are some of the hardest hit stocks. And what are we seeing? We're starting to see that yield curve after it inverted last summer. It's kind of widening out again. So to me, that does not, that should not mean that that bank stocks are out of the woods and a lot of their businesses are very, very exposed to some of the industries that are very impaired. And I would just say that we are very early on in this economic crisis. So the color that we get from banks, I suspect, is, is going to be somewhat disappointing and it's not going to be, um, we're not going to see a ton of visibility on the earnings front either. Yeah, I do wonder, listen, Karen, we, we know that things are slowing down on Main Street. I, I don't know about you guys at Metropolitan, but Everybody I know on Wall Street, despite having to go through all these hurdles working from home and slow computer connections, whatever, seems to be pretty busy. Volumes are up. The markets were dislocated. But that means there's opportunities. What are you closely most watching when it comes to the banks? Well, for me, it's all about credit quality. I agree with you. Trading revenues will probably be and capital markets revenues will probably be pretty good. But it's really all about credit. And we're, as you said, you know, the March quarter doesn't really matter. And, and companies could make it through March, even ones that won't make it through the next quarter, survive those three weeks of March that they had to to get to the finish line of the first quarter. To me, it's all about credit quality and really having some sense of how badly this balance sheet, even though it's very, very well capitalized, how badly it's going to get hit. And I don't know that they have visibility yet. So one thing that's been focused on a lot is, will the banks continue to pay dividends? And JP Morgan has paid out about 30-ish <clears throat> percent of their earnings in dividends. So the rest they use for buybacks, and then they build their book value. But I don't know if they will feel comfortable paying out all of their earnings. Let's say their earnings get crushed by two-thirds. I don't know if they would feel comfortable using the last third to pay out dividends. And I don't know that they'll have clarity yet on that. That's going to be something I really want to hear. I mean, I'm glad also that Jamie Dimon is back. That's great. We, we need him right now. But I, I want to hear what he has to say about the economy. And also, the Fed really did them a favor with looking to buy every type of security because as much as they have loans, they also have other securities <coughs> as well. That helps the banks. But to me, it's much more important than the net interest margin or their trading revenue or what's happened in their, in their asset wealth business. It's, it's just about yeah. credit quality. And, and Tim, listen, I'm not trying to be glib when I say this. I mean, I, I think that there's going to be, and you, you said it earlier, and I'm kind of summarizing you, it's, there's going to be a lot of CEOs and CFOs who come out and say, our earnings were terrible. And we really don't know what's going to happen. And, and that's, I think, going to summarize a lot of the guidance that we are unfortunately going to get. Yeah, I think I think Jamie Dimon, who's been pretty sober of late um, on some of the comments, and he's always been such a thoughtful kind of rational folk here. Um, I think you've got a question where, as Karen said, net interest income doesn't matter. Um, the, the revolving loan and the, in fact, there's been runaway issuance. So they're making a lot of money in capital markets right now. But I care about credit. Uh, and I don't think we have an insight into that credit horizon in the short term. All right, Tim Seymour, earnings season, like it or not, is certainly upon us coming up. All right. What else is coming up? 
is our Markets and Turmoil special. 7 o'clock tonight, of course, the story, the economic story, the health story, everything continues to evolve. All the latest that you need to know about the markets, about the pandemic, and everything that is caught in the middle coming up at 7 o'clock tonight. All right, coming up, we've heard the stories about CEOs laying people off while paying themselves more. Coming up, we're going to meet a CEO who's done the exact opposite. He's taking some steps to make sure that almost none or none of his 12,000 or so employees lose their jobs. A couple of simple steps that he has done to save jobs that maybe other CEOs can learn from. That CEO, Bob Chapman, coming up right after this. All right, welcome back. One of the biggest economic stories out there certainly has been the airlines. Travel has been utterly decimated all while they await federal aid. Let's get the very latest and some of the statistics, Phil Lebeau, that I saw you earlier today. I mean, there's basically like 99% of people who used to travel aren't. Right. Yeah, we'll, and we've got a new one. Just got one a few minutes ago. We'll share that with you at the end. That's called a tease, Brian. But let's talk first off about the government grants, the payroll grants that the airlines were lobbying Congress for that was approved by Congress. The airlines thought we're going to get $25 billion that doesn't need to be repaid. In exchange, we won't lay anybody off at least until September 30th. Well, guess what? The Treasury Secretary has the latitude to change the terms of those, and he has decided 70% will be immediate cash the airlines don't have to repay. The other 30%, low-interest loans that the airlines do have to repay. They're not happy about it, but most of the executives I've talked with have said begrudgingly they're likely to accept these loans, or not these loans, the, the grants that include a debt component. Here's the concern, not only within the airline industry, but also on Wall Street, that there is a debt component as part of these uh, cash grants that have been uh, offered by the Treasury Department. When you look at the debt levels of the airlines, consider this. Just since February, just since February, as you take a look at some of the airline stocks, you are looking at an industry that has taken on an additional $15.2 billion, $15.2 billion in loans just since February. And that's why Fitch and other credit rating agencies, they've cut the credit ratings for the, uh, the airlines, and they've basically said, look, these guys may have to take out even more loans in the future. They may borrow from the government another $25 billion. They may have to go to the private market after that. How much more do these guys have to lever up in order to keep this industry at the level of employment where it's at right now? One last stat for you, Brian. I just got this a few minutes ago from Flight Aware. The number of commercial flights in this country is down 70%. The number of commercial flights globally, down 80%. That gives you some indication of just what kind of an impact the coronavirus has had on the airline industry worldwide and also here in the U.S. We're going back to the flight levels of like the 1950s, probably, Phil. I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the load factors, ridiculous. I mean, you're talking maybe in the teens. I mean, you're down 97% in terms of the number of people who are flying right now versus the same day a year ago. That's how low the flight Unbel levels are right now. Unbelievable. Pictures all over the Internet of, you know, one guy on a flight, and he's the one that took the picture. Phil Lebeau, thank you very much. Guy Dami. Any of the airlines investable? They're getting they're getting backstopped. No, but I, I don't I don't I don't I don't you know financial alchemy notwithstanding. And I you know I hear everything you just said about you know the amount of money being poured in here, and I get that part of it. But I mean the question you have to ask yourself if you're watching this at home is, do you think 
over the course of the next six to nine months to a year, we're going to have any semblance of normalcy or get back to any levels that we saw pre-coronavirus in terms of the airlines? My sense is no. And, you know, business travel is a huge part of it. I think, you know, people have learned the hard way. Maybe it's not necessary. So as much as I'd love to say they're screaming buys, I just don't see it when you have, you know, I think United and American were down 8%, Delta down 4%. Yeah, you've bounced off the lows we made a couple weeks ago, but not really in a meaningful way. So in my opinion, along with the broader market, I think there's more pain ahead for the airline stocks. Okay, and I'm not going to editorialize here, Karen, based on aggregated Wall Street information, analyst estimates, price targets, ownership, most people consider Delta to have the best balance sheet. So would you be a buyer of Delta? No, I I agree with Guy. I mean, I'm concerned about the industry. I don't think we're going to have a real V-shaped recovery um, more generally, and I don't think we'll have one for the industry. So, uh, you know, if you look at their bonds, and I feel like the credit markets have a better understanding than the equity markets, until the Fed said they were going to buy debt that has become junk only recently, which which was Delta, um, those bonds were trading in the 70s. So to me, that says the equity value is too high, given where the credit markets were saying the credit would be. So, no, it's, I mean, I, I'm sad for them. It's a great company, but I, I don't want to own the equity. All right, Karen, thank you very much. Looking there at the airlines. All right, there's been so many stories out there about you know, companies furloughing workers while the executives raked in all these all this cash. Let's flip that story on its head. I want to bring in a CEO. Inc. Magazine named him the third best or most recognized CEO in the United States. And he has taken some simple steps to make sure that all or nearly all of his 12,000 employees are able to keep their jobs. Bring in Bob Chapman. He is the CEO of privately held Barry Wanmiller. They're a St. Louis, Missouri-based company. Uh, Bob, I've read some of your stuff over the weekend after hearing your story. Thanks very much for joining us. You sliced your own salary. You did ask some of your workers to take some some unpaid vacation time. But what have you done else to make sure all your team members stay employed? Because that's what matters right now. Well, one of the things I want to stress is that business could be a powerful force for good. And right now, we our focus is on our people. How can we as businesses focus on creating an environment where our people feel safe and valued. And so what we've done is we've done a lot of things, if you will, like a caring family, taking a little pain, each one of us taking a little pain so we don't hurt anybody. But the key here, Brian, is your business model design. We designed a robust business model that takes us through worst conditions. We run it conservatively. We are good stewards of our financial balance sheet. So we are going to get through this without hurting our people. That is our focus that is the responsibility of a leader. How long can you keep that up, Bob, based on current trends? It is my sense from our latest estimate that uh, given the backlog we have, and again, we serve basic industries like the tissue, toilet paper industry, the beverage industry, the pharmaceutical industry. We, we serve corrugated industries. So our businesses are built around serving robust businesses so that we Again, my responsibility is to give my people in my span of care a grounded sense of hope for a better future. And I do that by designing the business model that will keep them as safe as possible. And when we encounter situations as we do, our our goal is not to rely upon the government to help us, which I believe they're trying to help these companies that have been severely hurt. 
but what can we do for our people to send them home feeling mm-hmm. safe, valued, so we can help each other get through this? So I think we can go. I think it's going to be a slow recovery. But, again, we serve basic industries. We have a good backlog. We have a conservative balance sheet. And we have people who genuinely care for each other. Yeah, taking your own salary down a ton. Bob Chapman, I wish we had more time. I wish we had more stories like yours. Love to hear them in a time of need for everybody. Bob Chapman and Barry Waymiller doing the good work there to keep everybody working. Folks, and by the way, if you hear more stories like that, reach out on Twitter and let us know. I'd love to hear and tell those stories, especially now we all could use some good news. All right, coming up after the break, Johnson & Johnson. Could they provide us some good news of the treatment for coronavirus? We'll talk more about that coming up. Mike Co. J&J reports tomorrow. What are you looking at? Yeah, so this is implying a move of about 5%, much bigger than the 2.3% or so that it normally averages. And options were above average today as well. The most active were the April 145 calls expiring this Friday. Those were trading for about a dollar. Buyers of those calls are betting that the stock could be up that 5% implied move by the end of this week. Mike, thank you very much. Watch those JJ numbers tomorrow, right after the break. Barron's names 12 stocks that have done well that it thinks could keep running. We'll get the trader's take on names that you may want to own now, right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Barron's, over the weekend, laying out 12 stocks that have benefited from the chaos surrounding this work from home and current economic environment, anything from Gilead, which we talked about, Dollar General, Akamai, which pushes video over the web, Citrix, Vertex, and even an oil and gas company, Cabot, oil and gas. So our crack producer, Kevin Flynn, saw that article and said, let's talk to our investment committee about those names and see if there's any that they like. And we're going to start with Guy Dami because Guy, for a while, has liked Dollar General. But Guy, everybody's piled in and piled on. Has it gotten too rich for your blood? Yeah, I mean, it's the move has been pretty ridiculous. I think it made an all-time high today. I mean, I would understand why, based on what you just read from Barron's, the contrarians would want to take profits here. I think you've got to stay with it, though, despite the fact mm-hmm. that it's moved. And the other stock mentioned there is Newmont Mining, which we've talked about now seemingly since last fall. And I think that closed either side of 60 bucks. The move in there has been ridiculous because the gold market still wants to go higher. So if you ask me to pick two, it would be those two, Brian. Okay, Karen Feinerman, Walmart. I mean, doing a lot of good, hiring a lot of folks, staying open, working hard. But is the stock attractive? The stock is kind of expensive, certainly in this market expensive, but it deserves to be. I mean, as you you know, they're hiring a lot of people. Their online businesses, you know, this is a... A true test for them, and they're passing well. That they've spent years doing that, and now I think they will see a more permanent change to online. Even if the economy goes back to somewhat normal, I think there'll be a shift up in how much we do online. So I like that. I like their scale. I like the balance sheet. Uh, there's a lot to like. It's a tiny bit stretched on on valuation. So I've gone with Target, which is a very similar story. It's kind of Walmart light with a Walmart light multiple, so it's cheaper. But I, I like where Walmart is, and I like what they're doing. Yeah, I was told, Tim Seymour, that there's a name on this list that you like. And I, I promise, we have not, I have not seen the notes, but, I, but I'm going to guess it's <laughs> Newmont Mining or no? 
Uh, well, Guy talked about Newmont, so you're kind of right. But how about how about Gilead uh, and how about Nasdaq? I mean, Gilead, first of all, it's not just Remsevere and, and some COVID-19 prospects, but it's a balance sheet. It's all about the balance sheet, despite the fact that that's part of the reason uh, the company's been somewhat defensive, HCV and HIV not growing. Nasdaq, debt to equity, 0.5, great balance sheet, growing 8% EPS, excuse me, EPS growth, um, and Dan? certainly some derivative products there. It's fine. All right. You know what, Dan? We'll get yours later this week. We promise. Thank you all for watching CNBC's Fast Money. NASDAQ up, Dow down. Jim Cramer is going to lay out all the market moves and what you should do now. Mad Money's coming up right now. We will see you tomorrow. Take care. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.